Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 77 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm one of your hosts. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And sitting across from me is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. And right now we are in beautiful, sunny Moab, Utah. This is the first time that Michelle and I have been together in the same room for like four years. That's right. It feels like much more frequently because we talk so much for the podcast, but I was like, I haven't seen you in like person in four years. And it's actually kind of weird recording this way because we're just like passing this microphone back and forth. (laughs) So if the sound seems weird, then that's why. But we're going to do our best to share some highlights from both the AAD and the Utah Derm Society meeting with you today. Yes, the reason we are in Moab is because the Utah Dermatology Society very kindly invited us to come down to speak, and this is the last day we're both here, and the hotel checkout time is in 28 minutes, but we thought we might at least discuss some things for this portion, and then probably we'll switch back to our normal, like, remote recording later. So again, if the sound is a bit different, that's why. But it was just so exciting to be able to record in the same spot. We couldn't pass it up. So I was not able to make it to AAD because I had a good friend getting married that same weekend. But Michelle, you were there. How was the AAD? It was really wonderful to be able to learn together again. So I thought it was very well run. The sessions were well attended. And it was really an awesome awesome meeting. There were really great sessions. I got to be a part of about six of them, which was wonderful. And I got to attend a few also and learn some new things. We would love to know the highlights of anything that you learned so that those of us who weren't able to make it to the AAD or didn't attend those exact sessions can feel not as bad that they at least got the highlights from Dr. Michelle Tarbox. (laughs) So, of course, the sessions I got to attend are going to be reflective of my interest and also my participation in some of them. One of the cool things that I got to be a part of was What's New in Dramatopathology that Jeffrey North put together, and it was a wonderful session to be allowed to be a part of, and I was so excited to get to learn with everybody. One of the cool things we learned in that session is actually there's a very interesting saga of a skin cancer that usually occurs on the fingertips. It got multiply renamed. Do you recall me teaching you about this, Luke? Just in the car the other day. (laughs) That's true. I can't keep things like this to myself. So basically, there is the saga of this kind of cancer that can occur on fingertips called the aggressive digital papillary adenocarcinoma. When it very first was discovered, it was thought to be actually just an adenoma. So it was called a digital papillary adenoma. And then people started to notice that some people were developing metastases from these things. And they're like, okay, we'll call it the aggressive digital papillary adenoma. And then they're like, eh, it's really acting much more like a carcinoma. It's like, okay, fine. It's the aggressive digital papillary adenocarcinoma. And they're like, doesn't aggressive and carcinoma kind of seem like a little bit of an overdoing of this? And so they're like, all right, fine. It's a digital papillary adenocarcinoma. But the story is not over. So more recently, they've actually discovered a unique HPV type associated with this unusual cancer. It's HPV type 42, and it was identifiable in a sequential series that looked at the different expressions of different kinds of um, viral antigens that were kind of looked at sequentially in a single center, but there were multiple cases that were HPV 42 positive. So I thought that was really cool. 
now that we're talking about this, I realize that not bringing the pimping bell with us could have been an oversight. So you'll have to insert your own ding-dings for things that you feel are important. So from a clinical standpoint, how do I recognize these digital adenocarcinomas? Do they just look like funny squames on the fingertips or something? Well, like a lot of things that can occur on the fingertips, they're somewhat obscured by the thickness of acral skin. Um, so they can just appear as a nodule. If they get to an ulcerative stage, of course, they're quite advanced at that point. You'd like to catch them before that. I think it's more important to catch them on pathology because they'll kind of draw your attention to them, hopefully. Um, on histology, they look actually kind of almost like an apocrine hydrocystoma or cystadenoma type tumor of the digits. And so this can be a pitfall of digital papillary adenocarcinoma. So you do have to be able to like think around the edges of things, especially if you get a strange report back for an unusual site. All right. What else did we pull out from the AAD? So some of the other cool things that I got to go attend was a very interesting session on... Um, different kinds of viruses and different things that they can cause. So one of the fun things that's also very pimpable, so ding, ding, is the HPV 6 and 7 associated dermatoses. So of course we know that exanthem subitum or roseola, sixth disease, is the original presentation of this condition in humans. And we know it can have a recrudescence as pityriasis rosea or dress, but I think a lot of us might not know that there's also implications potentially for lichen planus, acute graft versus host, Giannotti crosti syndrome, and even potentially potentially increased susceptibility to basal cell carcinoma. You're right. I did not know that. And just as a reminder, roseola is the one where you have fever, 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 rash. I like to think of it as roseola. That's like the fever coming up and then the rash coming down. Also, there are a number of diseases that are thought to perhaps be virally associated, and one wonders if it's one of these HHV types or just some other virus that hasn't been quite identified yet, like Kawasaki disease, for example. So it doesn't surprise me that there's more stuff associated with these viruses that we have appreciated in the past. And then, of course, if we're going to talk about the herpes viruses and cancer, we can't not talk about EBV, right? So the EBV-associated lymphoproliferative disorders can include for the B-cell lineage EBV-positive mucocutaneous or ulcer, ding, ding, <laughs> EBV-positive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma of the elderly, um, post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder, lymphomatoid papulosis, plasmablastic lymphoma, primary effusion lymphoma, and Burkitt lymphoma in the endemic variant. Another interesting thing in that same talk was going over as just kind of a refresher what the primary targets and main sites of latency are for different herpes viruses. So if you will permit, I shall do an etude on herpes. All right, so HHV1 is otherwise known as herpes simplex virus 1. Its primary target cells are mucoepithelia, which I think all of us are aware of, and its main site of latency, sensory or cranial nerve ganglion. They're also classified by different types. This is an alpha-type human herpes virus. Similar, HHV2, HSV2, mucoepithelia is their primary target, sensory cranial nerve ganglia are their sites of latency, and they're also alpha. And then to round out the alpha versions, we have the HHV3, also known as varicella zoster virus. Initial site of infection is mucoepithelia because of the respiratory transmission. And site of latency, as we all know very well, is sensory cranial nerve ganglia. And it's the last of the alphas. And then we go on to HHV5. Now, there isn't really an HHV4. 
So that's interesting. At one point, that means there must have been something that was a candidate and then it got lost to history. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to find that later. Um, HHV5, cytomegalovirus, its primary target cells are monocytes, lymphocytes, and epithelia, and it becomes latent in monocytes and lymphocytes. It's a beta herpes virus. And then HHV6 and HHV7, and remember that HHV6 has types A and type B are both roseola viruses. Their primary target cells are T cells. Their main sites of latency are leukocytes, and they're classified as a beta herpes virus. And then our gamma herpes virus is human herpes virus 8, Kaposi's sarcoma-associated herpes virus, whose primary target cells are epithelia and lymphocytes, and main site of latency is B lymphocytes. According to the internet, HHV4 is EBV. Oh, interesting. Oh, you know what? I totally left that out of the table. My bad. <laughs> but your explanation would make sense had you been correct. <laughs> sorry about that. My bad. I was actually thinking of the in the childhood exanthems. I'm sorry about that. There is a childhood exanthem that's numbered that disappeared, and I think it was four, wasn't it? I think fourth's disease doesn't exist anymore. Anywho, um, let's see. Other interesting things that I learned. There was an interesting medical ethics talk um, that discussed a drug called eclizumab, and its brand name is Solaris, and it's the most expensive drug in the world. Um, so about $400,000 per year with biweekly dosing. It's an immunosuppressive used to treat paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria and atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. And allegedly 80% of its 800 million development was at the public expense. Uh, the company that makes it has a bit of an aggressive sales approach. Um, so there was a question about how do we deal with medications like this for conditions that are very niche, right? Because paroxysmal nocturnal hematuria and atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome are quite unusual um, or rare conditions, but they can be very serious. And the people who have those, you know, we would like for them to live and thrive and survive. So it's an interesting thing to try to figure out how to manage those kinds of things. Cool. And I know you weren't able to attend very many sessions, but I'm sure that there was lots of other stuff to learn at the AAD as well. Do you want to talk about the Utah Derm Society? I would love to. Well, um, those of you who live in Utah are, can certainly become members. I think it's actually free to just join the society. And then they have a meeting, I believe, every year. And it alternates between different beautiful places in southern Utah. Right now we're in Moab, which is right outside of Arches National Park. Michelle, you and I both went on some hikes in Arches National Park while we were here. It was so beautiful and so impressive. The natural beauty of this area cannot be overstated it's ridiculous how just gorgeous everywhere you turn looks and the arches are so gigantic they look like they must be computer generated you just feel like you must be on a movie set or something we got some pictures of up up of us up on social media of us uh hanging around the arches and then every other year it's also in zion national park which is one of my favorite places in the world anyway we had some great speakers today including michelle there was also me and then there were other great speakers as well and here are just some highlights that i found so for dermatologic surgery for example ka's can kebnerize in areas of excision or mose so if you had a squame and you cut it out and now there's new spots then you might be have ka's that have shown up along the scar and the speaker suggested that we consider intralesional methotrexate that was dr jerry brewer by the way mm -hmm. also don't let your dog eat effudex mm -hmm. it kills them I had this experience with a VA patient of mine in residency. Um, to my chagrin, I kind of blamed the patient for just leaving their tube around for dogs to eat, but maybe we should tell people, don't let your dog eat your medicine. 
actually, um, because of that patient and, and a different patient, I actually had a little publication that we did about um, the de- deleterious effects of human drugs on animals that you might keep as pets in your house. And we talked about, of course, the dangers of 5-fluorouracil to animals ingesting them. And some there's been some case reports of even an animal like licking it off their owner's hands or face and developing severe, severe toxicity based off that. Scary. So he also talked a little bit about things like ethics and relationships. So one thing he mentioned that I thought was helpful was situations pass, relationships last. I love that. Chew on that one for a second. More practically, if you lose a needle in a patient while you're sewing them up or something, there's two ways to locate a needle that was left in a patient's body, ultrasound and x-ray. Ultrasound is probably better because it can precisely locate the needle, and then you can go ahead and remove it. Also, speaking of sutures, PDS might be a good suture choice for a deep, deep stitch, like if you're putting something way down deep to do a plicating stitch or close some potential space. Um, Long-acting monocryl, which apparently is purple, is also a decent choice. Also about um, dermatologic surgery, this deep plicating stitch Dr. Brewer liked a lot. So basically you stick it way down deep and you're stitching together like the SMAS or the fascial plane or whatever you're talking about, which can do a long way to just sort of close the wound and take the tension off of the edges. He says the cosmesis is a lot better that way and there's less undermining necessary. I love a good plicating stitch because it really does just that. It takes that tension off the wound edge and the closures end up so much more elegant appearing. It's great to use. And it's, you know, really, you can do it most parts of the body. So that's kind of cool. And if any of you were like, well, yeah, but undermining is like a complex closure, right? I believe placing deep plicating stitches also moves you to a complex closure if, if you're wondering how to bill it properly. Dr. Brewer also talked about wellness. So he said, activating your smile muscles can help to add a positive vibe to a stressful situation. He says he actually does this with his kids. And one way to do it is by smiling. Here, I'll smile right now. Oh, I feel better already. (laughs) Another way to do it is just by holding a pen or pencil in between your teeth because you activate similar muscles. And um, probably just because you're both holding pencils between your teeth, you'll just start laughing at each other instead of being pissed at each other or whatever. Um, He also said to look out for being a hero, because sometimes when you're a hero, you're making someone else a victim. Michelle, you talked about this a little bit during one of our hikes. (laughs) Yes, you know, it's it's easy to fall into the mentality that you have to fix every problem, especially I I run into this issue um, being active in an academic program, because there's always going to be issues that arise and you want to address them. But we also have to give breathing space to the problems to try to identify what the best way to handle them is and not always just rush in with a solution. I think that's actually something that you probably have learned as a parent, Luke, that when you kind of rush in to try to help a kid that's maybe struggling, it might actually create other problems that you didn't anticipate. I'm always creating problems I didn't anticipate (laughs) as a parent. Uh, But speaking of problems, he says, view situations, not people, as the problem, which I thought was helpful. And one way to avoid burnout slash be a good person is to be open, be curious, and be committed to learning. And what we mean by committed to learning is learning about what's going on, what are other people's thoughts and feelings and motivations, not like learning academically. Okay, there was a talk about cryoglobulinemia. So cryoglobulinemia can cause both vascular occlusion as well as vasculitis. There are three types, which you probably remember with some PTSD from your learning. Ding, ding. Ding, ding. So type one tends to be a vasculopathy. And there's different antibodies that are involved, but I don't 
honestly care about them because it doesn't really help me clinically to know which antibodies are involved. But type 1 is most commonly a vasculopathy rather than a vasculitis. So you'll see purpura at acral sites, at ears and stuff like that, you know, sites that are colder. And histologically, type 1 is a lot more bland appearing. So you can see the blood vessels just filled up with these sort of monomorphous looking clots, but you don't have a lot of inflammation with type 1. Contrast that with type 2 and 3, which look very similar to each other and are the majority of cases, so they together make 80 to 90% of cases. They can be, their vasculitides, and they can be systemic as well. And they can be associated with hepatitis C and also with autoimmune disease. Michelle, I'm sure you remember which antibodies are involved. So just for completeness. <laughs> okay, so I believe type 2, and you may check this for me here, is a monoclonal IgG and monoclonal IgM. It might be polyclonal. I was giving you too much credit. Too much credit. Too much credit. It's been a while. I know type 2 and type 3 are both mixed, so they have RF factor. um, And they can be, of course, associated with infections as well as the autoimmune diseases. The um, monoclonal IgM is going to be less likely to have systemic vasculitis, so that can be beneficial and helpful to know. Um, Type 1 can be caused by B-cell lymphoproliferative disease. Um, So that's one of the things that can potentially induce that, as opposed to type 2, which seems to be related more to chronic inflammation and hyperactivation of the immune system, either by the very immune-provoking infection of hepatitis C or by autoimmune diseases. All right. And treatment for cryoglobulins is shifting to rituximab, though if the patient has hepatitis C, first treat their hepatitis C and it gets better, then maybe their cryoglobulinemia will just get better by itself. By the way, rituximab, the main adverse effect is immunosuppression, which, you know, we know how to deal with immunosuppressive meds, but somebody also presented of a case of a patient with sporotrichosis, some kind of funky infection that occurred after rituximab. That was right. It was a very impressive case of sporotrichosis. Sporotrichosis cases, you usually can't find a single organism without really hunting for it. And this patient, it looked like if you've ever been around New Mexico or Texas and seen the little chili pepper lights that have the like cute little like chili peppers and they come off like the single light strand. The pictures of sporotrichosis from this patient's histology reminded me of those chili pepper lights I grew up with in Albuquerque, New Mexico. There were that many of them. And the little sporotrichosis organisms were also in kind of a little chain-like arrangement, almost like the little, you know, red chili pepper lights or if you've actually seen red chili like on a little cord sometimes. They sell it like that in the stores. I love it. The chili pepper light sign. My mom just thought those were cute, so they were hanging around our computer room a little bit when I was a kid. Another important point with the cryoglobulinemias is how you transport them before you actually test them. So you can get a false negative test in a patient who has legitimate cryoglobulinemia if they have cooling of the, of the sample before the test is run, because then the cryoglobulins will precipitate and not be there in the liquid portion of the sample to be tested. The chair of uh, the University of Utah Department of Dermatology was also a speaker, Christina Callis Duffin, among her many other talents. She's a world-class expert on psoriasis. So she talked to us about psoriasis and had a number of pearls, some of which are as follows. Don't use an IL-17 inhibitor in a patient with inflammatory bowel disease. A premolast, the brand name is Otesla, has similar efficacy to methotrexate, different side effect profile, of course, reduce the dose in renal disease. About 30% of patients develop psoriatic arthritis. Cyclosporin and acetretin don't work for psoriatic arthritis. And methotrexate doesn't work very well for psoriatic arthritis, especially for axial disease. 
I'm moving through here kind of quickly because checkout is in 10 minutes. But <laughs> still feel free to chime in if you have something, Michelle. I was actually just going to chime in to, to clarify. So when we were talking about the cryoglobulins, type 1 is monoclonal Ig, and it can be IgM more likely than it would be IgG or IgA. Type 2 is monoclonal Ig, usually IgM, and then a polyclonal Ig something. Um, and then type 3 is going to be polyclonal IgM and polyclonal IgG. So if you think about it with the numbers, like poly, of course, means more than one. So two polys is going to be the greatest number of things, and that's the highest number that we assign to cryoglobulinemia, so that's type 3. Um, polyclonal and monoclonal is one down, so that would be type 2, and monoclonal only type 1, so easier way to remember it. Do you think the hotel police will actually come knocking on the door when 11 o'clock rolls around? We might find out. It'll make for an interesting interrogation and action scene if it does, so woohoo! IL-23 inhibitors are approved for psoriatic arthritis. For axial psoriatic arthritis, so axial remembers like the mid-skeleton, so like the spine or the sacroiliac joints or something, TNF inhibitors and IL-17 inhibitors tend to be best. If you're treating kids, good on ya. Also, approved for kids age 6 and up is Ixikizumab, TALT, Secukinumab, Cosentix, and Eustakinumab, Stolara, and Etanercept, Enbrel, is approved for age 4+. IL-17 inhibitors work pretty fast, so 3-4 to four weeks to see a good response. Not as fast as cyclosporin, of course. Sometimes you get results within days with cyclosporin, but if you're putting someone on a biologic and want them to get better fast, especially if you would have liked to use cyclosporin but they're not a candidate for it, you want to go with an IL-17 inhibitor potentially. Patients with multiple sclerosis, of course, we want to avoid TNF inhibitors. Eustachinumab might be a good choice. It's actually been tested for multiple sclerosis. Hydroxychloroquine can induce psoriasis, especially pustular psoriasis and or AGEP. Tapinarov is an upcoming... <laughs> I think it sounds like a Russian prince's name. Like, oh, there is Lord Tapinarov. It's just funny. It's true. Um, it's a new topical agent that's coming out. Some patients who were using it cleared and then did not recur, which I thought was intriguing. For nail psoriasis, topicals just don't work very well. Um, you can use various biologics like uselcumab, adalimumab, ixakizumab, eustachinumab. They're probably all decent. If a patient doesn't respond or worsens, then think about onychomycosis. And that's all I got for psoriasis. All right, and then just briefly as a callback and correction from before, so yes, type 4 human herpes virus does exist. It's EBV. Um, this gives me sympathy for my residents when I put them on the spot and they don't have the answer. I, we are all susceptible to that. The numbered diseases of children, the fourth disease is the one that got lost to antiquity. So first disease, measles. Second disease, scarlet fever. Third disease, rubella. Fourth disease was something called filatov dukes disease, and that is obsolete now. Fifth disease, Erythema infectiosum by parvovirus B19, and sixth disease, Roseola exanthema subitum. Thank you for closing the loop. Dr. Whitney High was here from the University of Colorado and gave some excellent talks. He talked about challenging melanocytic lesions, for example, desmoplastic melanoma stains with S100 and SOX10, but not other melanoma stains. I, I'll be honest, I don't care. But I'm ah! happy that there are people out there who do. Dermatopathologists, thanks guys for caring about stuff like this. Similarly, this other stain, Melon A or Mart 1, is specific but not sensitive. Okay, here's something I care a little bit more about. Spitz nevi, because I deal with them in kids. If you stain with P16, that's good, because P16 is a tumor suppressor protein. So if it's active, then that's pretty good. Prame is a stain we've discussed on this podcast before. He says it's still looking good, but occasionally it misses for no clear reason that I can tell. 
The dermatopathologist, by the way, if you do a punch biopsy and send it over to them, they see something like one 450th of the volume of the punch biopsy, which could explain some strange results. Yeah, sampling errors are always a possibility. So if you get a path report back on something that doesn't make any sense, a phone call to the pathologist is a really good idea. As a pathologist, personally, if I'm looking at tissue and the clinical doesn't make sense, I call the clinician. And I can help my clinicians better when they give me better information. So another thing that Dr. High talked about was the importance of providing accurate clinical information. As a practicing dermatopathologist, I've had senders before that thought that they were going to bias me by telling me what they were looking for, what they were concerned about. But that's actually not a very good way to think about dermatopathology because a lot of it requires clinical pathologic correlation. In fact, that's one of the sessions I got to participate with at the AAD. And I got to see over and over again how that clinical pathologic correlation was the linchpin in making the right diagnosis so that the patient could get the care that they needed. So give the best information you can to your pathologist as the um, great Toby Maguire would say, help me help you. And then jump up on a couch and join the Church of Scientology. I mean, don't go you can choose to do that or not, if you want. <laughs> um, Dr. High also just had some interesting cases that he talked about. So PCT, porphyria cutanea tarda, and also other types of porphyrias can be sclerodermoid, which looks a lot like systemic sclerosis but with some ectropion and without the hand issues. So he referred to what he calls the spinning wedding band sign. So both of his patients had wedding bands and really narrow fingers, so you could sort of spin the wedding band around them, whereas in systemic sclerosis, since the hands tend to be so effective and swollen and things, their wedding bands are kind of stuck on there. So check porphyrins if you have a patient like that. And I actually have also a one other sad correction. The most expensive drug in the world now is something called Zolgensma. So I should have maybe said the only one that we might have something to do with. Zolgensma is a $2.1 million for annual supply medication that is made for spinal muscular atrophy, which is a horrible condition. So, you know, it's one of those things where you have to kind of try to figure out what to do for these conditions. So if Tepinarov is the Russian prince, Zolgensma is the German princess that they marry in order to maintain alliances in the 1800s. This is literally the story of Catherine the Great, just written with like drug names. Mucormycosis may not stain with GMS, even though it's kind of a fungus. Leishmaniasis can look like squamous cell carcinoma under the microscope, I guess. So you mm -hmm. want to look for things in the history like travel and it's a young patient who's not supposed to get a squame and stuff like that. I think a lot of us will remember the pseudoepitheliomatous epidermal hyperplasia, whose other name is pseudocarcinomatous epidermal hyperplasia, that can happen with chromoblastomycosis and can significantly mimic a squamous cell carcinoma, but it's really important to remember that can happen with leishmaniasis too. And then if you get a contrast agent containing iodine, then perhaps you might get iododerma, which can look like varicella or umbilicated crusted papules. Michelle, you are all over this one. Oh, this was a fascinating case. So Dr. High showed us the clinical first and then showed us the histologic images. And the histologic images really looked very much like the gelatinous version of cryptococcosis. So there is this presentation of halogenoderma where patients can have superficial little abscesses with a lot of space around the cells and it looks very much like cryptococcosis, but it's actually deposits of the contrast material as iododerma. It's crazy. So especially if you've got a patient who has poor renal function and got contrast, you might think about that. Uh, there was a talk about lichen sclerosis from one of our University of Utah dermatology residents, Margaret Cox. 
So gentle skin care of the vulva is important because irritants can aggravate many different types of vulvar diseases. I don't think I emphasize that enough to my patients with lichen sclerosis. Um, after you get it clear, maintenance. Some experts recommend clobetasol twice a week or triamcinolone daily. And in active treatment, if you're treating with clobetasol, you should use about 10 grams per month. So a 30 gram tube should be fine. It should last you about three months. So you can kind of get a handle on whether or not patients are using too much or too little based on how much of their tube is left. Most vulvar sclerosis responds quite well to clobetasol, but second and third line treatments include ILK, which seems very uncomfortable. So you can consider putting topical anesthesia on in advance. You can use five to 10 milligrams per ml for that. Acetretin, PO methotrexate, there's more data supporting it for extra genital disease, and also UVA1 if you have access to it. I want to give credit to the resident that presented this. Um, Margaret Cox did a fantastic job discussing how to treat lichen sclerosis, and I think gave a great rubric for how to deal with the concern other providers sometimes have about the use of clobetasol in this condition. So a lot of patients that I see, I'm the only lady in my practice at the moment, so I, I tend to take care of all the vulvar disease patients in my in my practice. And a lot of the time, they'll stop the clobetasol because they'll say their gynecologist or their primary care doctor told them to stop that because it thins skin. And one great point that she made is that you need to teach the patients to only apply the medication to the area of involvement. So actually get a mirror out, show the patient where the medication goes so that you don't end up with that inner thigh labial atrophy that can happen, like the, the labia majora, with uh, chronic clobetasol use in excess. So I think that the you know, demonstration of the fingertip unit, the um, kind of clarification of where the medication should be placed, where it should not be placed, and then understanding the connection between that chronic inflammation and the formation of squamous cell carcinoma are all important educational points that will help us to take better care of these patients with fewer intrusions. And we might as well, well, we might as well, we should, we should also give a shout out to Dr. Caitlin Bolander, our resident who presented the cryoglobulin stuff. And finally, there was just a little bit about medical legal issues. So Dr. High, in addition to his various other talents, is also a lawyer. So and an engineer. And an engineer. So malpractice, if you're wondering, is considered a tort law. Unfortunately, tort law doesn't mean you get a dessert pastry at the end if you win. I don't know what tort actually means, but tort law intends to make the injured party whole. W-H-O-L-E. If you ever watched um, Breaking Bad, there was a lot of talk about making people whole. If you remember, there was kind of the, uh, I'm trying to remember the actor's name. He's a great character actor, the kind of um, handsome gentleman with no hair on his scalp but plenty on his face and he kept talking about making these people whole and having to redistribute money and things like that with um, the main character which was always a source of dis discomfort but that concept gets talked about a lot also in The Sopranos so it's apparently used both in the law and in those who kind of run underneath the law well the goal is not to punish the person who did the malpractice for example it's just to try to make the person who was injured whole again I thought that was kind of an interesting to know. And it's also based on the preponderance of evidence, which is different than beyond a reasonable doubt. So he says he's careful about using the word probably in his medical documentation, because probably probably means you sort of thought a preponderance of the evidence supported something or other. So he tends to use the word possibly instead, because possibly could be anything between 10 and 90 percent, probably. 
I do think also he gives a great discussion about how to word um, your own reports when you're a consultant and when you're dealing with another person's previous work and ways to like help ensure that you don't accidentally add fuel to the fire. And some of these I actually keep in a little note card for consult cases that I get, such as we understand full well the conundrum, or this is a difficult case, or with the benefit of hindsight, or if you get another specimen after initial one in this larger sampling, or even further, considering all samplings and the clinical circumstances in toto, something along that, and having humility in consultation, which I thought was a very nice phrase, because it's easy for us as consultants, especially at tertiary referral centers with a lot of resources, to get up on our high horse and look down upon the lowly solo practicing pathologist and think, oh, how could they make this mistake? But we have to remember our privilege, right? That we're in a place that has colleagues we can show things to. We may have the benefit of meeting attendance more frequently because private practice might not always, not always allow that. We might have more immunostains or tests we can run. So that humility and consultation, I think, and humility in all practice is a good thing. We're not always right, and it's better for us to understand that. I think we, of course, get a selection bias as well. People get referred to us when they're not better by other stuff. So the PCPs probably take care of like 90% of eczema appropriately, but I get a false impression because I get the ones referred to me when it's not going well for one reason or another. Well, it is at 11.03 a.m., so I hear the hobnailed boots of the hotel police stalking down the hall. (laughs) Michelle, is there anything you want to add before we leave for now and pick this episode up later? The only thing I want to add is to say thank you so much to the Utah Dermatologic Society for putting on an amazing meeting. It was wonderful. I got to learn a lot of new things and, you know, get to reunite with a lot of wonderful people and meet some new wonderful people. And so I just am so grateful if you get the chance to visit Moab. Don't turn it down. All right, so I'm going to drive back to Salt Lake City. It takes about four hours, and Michelle is going to drive her rental car to Grand Junction, Colorado, which takes an hour and a half, and then fly to Dallas, and then fly to Lubbock. But for you guys, it will be like we time-traveled. We'll see you guys in just a couple seconds. Listeners, for you, it has been mere seconds, but for us, it has been several days. (laughs) Michelle and I have successfully time-traveled into the future, and we are now again in Salt Lake City and in beautiful sunny Lubbock, Texas, virtually discussing articles with you. We did have a great time in Moab, as we said, and we'll also have a great time talking about autoimmune bullous diseases. Yes, we have a wonderful article here, Updates from Medicine in the International Journal of Dermatology, from authors Frederick T. Gibson and Kyle T. Amber entitled Autoimmune Blistering Diseases Provoked During the Treatment of Chronic Inflammatory Disease with Biologic Agents, a Systematic Review. So just as they promised, they conducted a systematic review of articles published discussing patients with new-onset inflammatory bullous diseases that occurred during treatment with one of many biologics, which we'll go over briefly. So um, as we know, Autoimmune blistering diseases can sometimes occur following treatment with biologic agents for chronic inflammatory diseases like the ones we treat, like psoriasis, and also things like Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis. They conducted a comprehensive review of the literature, and they used all of the databases. They did a quite nice job, and they actually have a very nice uh, a very nice figure kind of describing what they did. So they filtered all the way through 582 different citations, and then they retrieved 515 articles. Of those, they excluded 487, and because of full text screen and eight were also excluded during the data extraction, so they ended up with 21 articles. 
in these 21 articles, they found 22 cases of autoimmune bullous disease provoked by the use of biologic agents. The That's most not com- very many. It's not a ton. Now, I'm sure it's very um, meaningful to the people who have been touched by these autoimmune bliss disorders. Um, I wouldn't wish an autoimmune, autoimmune blistering disease on anybody. You know, not even like Snidely Williams or, or even Wario. I wouldn't, you know, wish an autoimmune blistering disease on any of those characters. I feel like there's still some good in Wario in there somewhere. He's redeemable. Maybe, maybe he who shall not be named. Anyway. So, as you might suspect, the most commonly implicated agents were, drumroll please, I don't have that sound effect, I, I just have the TARDIS. The TNF-alpha wait, wait, inhibitors. there is something here called drums. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the TNF-alpha inhibitors, so there were 14 cases of autoimmune blistering disorders in patients on TNF-alpha inhibitors. Um, so they were the vast majority. The rest of the medications included medications like Stellara. Um, there were other medications as well, some of the ones that we don't use so much, and we'll go over those individually here in a minute. Stellara is ustekinumab. Ustekinumab, and I have a bit of a treatise on this, which I shall get to in a moment. Um, so I think that it's important to kind of go over those biologics and sort of their targets because I think that's highly pimpable, but it also actually has ties into the pathophysiology. So briefly, let's survey the landscape. So autoimmune blistering diseases, as we know, are some severe skin diseases that can cause the development of autoantibodies to some component of the desmosome or hemidesmosome or basement membrane zone. These are areas that hold the skin together. Yes, very important for epidermal integrity and epidermal and dermal attachment to each other. Most of these conditions occur without any obvious inducing agent. Um, no more than 15% can we usually identify the inducing agents, but some medications that have been com- commonly implicated include those that contain a thiol group or a phenol group, which are thought to alter the antigenicity of basement membrane keratinocytes or their molecular antigens, leading to autoantibody formation. So the authors undertook this review to look specifically at these biologic agents to determine what the characteristic of autoimmune blistering disease associated with their use is, and also what the clinical course of that condition would be. So they did the nice comprehensive review, and their search terms included a nice list, which I shall do a brief review of, of biologic agents. So the first ones make sense because they are the TNF-alpha inhibitors. So at some point, flavoflavonoid is going to make a whole song about biologics, and I think I might do it to the Adam assembly. So I started it off with the, let's see, the biologics power started with TNF-alpha and something else, and it was going to be fun. Anyway, so we start off with the TNF-alpha inhibitors, including adalimumab, which is Humira, um, etanercept, which is Enbrel, infliximab, which is Remicade, golimumab, which we may be less familiar with as dermatologists, which is also known by the name of Symphony. So I think of golimumab as like Goldilocks because things have to be just right for Goldilocks. And golimumab is really more of a joint medication than it is a skin medication. So it technically works for both, but it's better for joint disease than it is for skin, which is why most dermatologists don't use a whole lot of golimumab or symphony. So those are our TNF-alpha inhibitors. And then we also have an unusual kind of sort of part of the group, but not exactly in the group. So like a tannercept is its own special thing. It's the human fusion protein of the TNF um, receptor and the FC region of IgG1. So that's what etanercept is. What about 
Yes, I'm getting Sertralizumab yes, Pegol, which is Simzia, is also different. So it is a pegylated FAB fragment, and it has two peg molecules attached to that FAB fragment, which then binds with TNF-alpha. There is no FC region, which stands for fraction crystallizable um, in Simzia. And that may um, have fewer issues with autoimmunity and alters metabolism, things like that. So it's different because of that. So I like to learn outliers because I think that they're both highly testable, but also those might be a medication that might be a useful alternative in the setting where patients had trouble with other medicines in the same class. So those are... Polyethylene glycol or... Polyethylene glycol. I think so. I'm not positive. Pegylated, maybe that... Why don't you do a little info quest while we talk about secukinumab and ixikizumab. So if it has a lot of sounds in it, it's probably an IL-17 inhibitor. So secukinumab and ixikizumab are both IL-17. Now Cosentix is an IL-17A IgG1 monoclonal antibody. And it's, sorry, it is um, targeting IL-17A. Ixikizumab, TALTS, is the IL-17A and F, um, so monoclonal antibody. So that is a very um, small difference, but it may be material, and we'll maybe speak on that a little bit later. Uh, So it has a little higher binding affinity, which is interesting. It's two and a half, about 13 days. And then there's the weird outlier of the IL-17 group, which is silic or brodalumab. So brodalumab or silic actually targets the receptor rather than the ligand. So it is an IL-17RA or IL-17RC receptor is its target. So that's brodalumab. So I always remember like, bro, that's an awesome silic blouse. And then you like receive the compliment, the receptor. And you feel suicidal because you're talking to a frat boy. Right. I mean, Brodalumab is this one that has the REMS for potential association with suicidality that may or may not be real, which is, I think, why most people don't end up prescribing it. Um, by the way, PEG does stand for polyethylene glycol, Woo-hoo! and it makes the molecule a lot bigger. So, for example, in a pregnant woman, sertralizumab oh, yeah. might That's be the important. one of choice because it doesn't cross the placenta because it's mm-hmm. so big. I like it. So that's our IL-17s. So secukinumab, ixikizumab, and then brodalumab, silic. So they still got a k sound in there with silic, but brodalumab doesn't have any. Um, the next all by itself, all by itself, is eustachinumab, one of the most hilariously named medications in the world, in my personal opinion, because it really sounds like they're giving instructions. It's like, you stick in you. You stick in you, you stick in you, Meb. So you stick in you, Meb, or Stellara is IL-1223 inhibitor utilizing the P4, P40 subunit as a target. So that is all by itself, the 1223. And then we get into the hot new version of Stellara, which are just the 23 inhibitors. So we'll start with one of our faves, but maybe slightly unseated fave, Guselcumab, which we think sounds like goose. And then we think Tremphia sounds like the um, little Aflac duck going Tramphia for Guselkimab, and it is an IL-23 human IgG1. Do you have a goose, like, making a, no- a little noise in your... I do. Here, have a listen. Tramphia! That, that was just me. <laughs> I thought I was waiting for a sound. And no, then I was like, was oh, no, it's, very, it's taking longer than I thought it would. And then after that, there's Tildrakizumab, which is Illumia. The way I remember this one is very silly. But I think till I think tell Drake that he's ill, you know, because like Drake, the like singer, tell Drakezumab illumia. 
So tildrakizumab Illumia is an IL-23 inhibitor. And by and ill, it's like like good. Like, like, man, like a compliment. It. Exactly. Totally Ill, Ill. Exactly. It's a compliment. It's a compliment to young Blake. You know, it's something he should enjoy. So tildrakizumab, which is part of our IL-23 grouping along with Dremphia, um, Illumia IL-23. And it's interesting because IL-23 modulation actually controls IL-17 and TNF-alpha. And we'll talk about that here in a second. Then there's dupilumab, IL-4, and IL-13. And then some we're probably less familiar with. So serilumab, so serilumab is Kevzara, and it's an IL-6. Tocilizumab is Ectemra, also an IL-6. So those go together. Then there's Benlista. Then Lista blocks the soluble BLYS, so that is for B-cell survival. The BLYS is actually, I think, a lot of where its name comes from, Benlista. So that is the um, B-cell survival factor blocker. Then there's Anik. trade name. Yes, Benlista. It's, Sorry. What is it? Belimumab or Belimumab is its like generic name. That's used for lupus. Yes. I have a couple patients with bad cutaneous lupus that are on that. Um, Anakinra is Kinneret. It's an IL-1 um, receptor antagonist. And then there's Kanakinumab, which is Ilaris, and that's IL-1 beta. Those are, a lot of those drugs are used for like rheumatoid arthritis and bad lupus. Then there's Daclizumab, which is a, uh, it targets CD25. Zinbrita was its trade name. And you heard the word was in there. So this is a medication that was used for multiple sclerosis. It was taken off the market in March 2018 because of autoimmune encephalitis. You're going to sense a theme here. Next is Natalizumab, Tysabri. That's an MS drug as well. It was briefly taken off the market in 2005 due to cases of um, progressive multifocal leukencephalopathy, PML. So natalizumab was taken off the market, then put back on. Um, it binds to the alpha-4 beta-1 integrin. So this is a unique mechanism of action, the alpha-4 beta-1 integrin, and it blocks its interaction with VCAM1. So the two drugs for multiple sclerosis, the CD25 blocker, which is very interesting to me because CD25 is overexpressed in um, adult T-cell leukemia associated with the HTLV-1 virus. It looks a lot like MF under the microscope. So if you practice dermatopathology in an area that has a high endemic population of patients that could be affected by the um, HTLV-1 virus, then you actually have to check a CD25 every time you case you sign out a case of mycosis fungoides. But anyway, interesting mechanisms of action for those two. And then finally, we will pour one out for efilizumab, which makes a brief appearance in this article. If you are a younger dermatologist, you may have no idea what I'm talking about when I say efilizumab because it was also taken off the market. It was previously known as Raptiva, and it worked by targeting LFA1 and its interaction with ICAM1, which was blocking that. It was taken off the market in 2009 for, again, progressive multifocal leukencephalopathy. So we don't talk about Raptiva no more. Anyway, so... A brief treatise on the biologic agents studied in this particular publication. You so and I now... listened to way too much of that song while driving my kids <laughs> around arches. I know. I was like, oh, we're going to get a lot of this song up in Hera. It's kind of fun, but it's all right. So, anywho, they looked at reports including all of those drugs. 
Um, they included rituximab because it actually has a established role in the treatment of autoimmune bullous disorder. So I think it's very reasonable for them to have excluded that. Their diagnostic criteria for um, autoimmune bullous disorder included positive direct immunofluorescence and or detectable serologic autoantibodies using enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, so ELISA, or indirect immunofluorescence, along with clinically suggestive features. So now, Luke, I get to ask some good questions. So nice pearls I've picked up over my career is that there's lots of interesting developing ways to test for types of autoimmune blistering disorders. One of my favorite, like interesting ways to do that is actually people can actually do DIFs and histology off of plucked hairs for um, pemphigus vulgaris. So if for some reason you can't get a biopsy, a plucked hair, because that process extends down the follicular epithelium, and that's one of the diagnostic criteria on pathologies, it extends down the follicular epithelium. So the DIF on a plucked hair would be positive. Um, similarly, histology would potentially show the acantholysis, so that could potentially be useful, which is kind of cool. And then you, of course, also like to ask about the indirect immunofluorescence kind of review. So we'll talk about the correct indirect immunofluorescence substrate for pemphigus vulgaris. Remember, monkeys are vulgar so they because they throw poo and all that stuff. So monkey esophagus is the indirect immunofluorescence um, substrate for pemphigus vulgaris. And that's because, of course, it's enriched in desmoglein-3. You know, um, in our social media, sometimes we have like quotes from the upcoming episodes, the recently mm-hmm. released episodes. I think one's going to be because they throw poo and all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, in fact, you know, they do now. If I asked you before there, I read this article what the substrate for indirect immunofluorescence was for pemphigus foliaceus, what would you say? I would say guinea pig. Guinea pig, exactly. Nom, 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 guinea pig esophagus. But apparently the new hot guinea pig esophagus is normal human skin. Who knew? So hot right now. So hot. So hot right now. So normal human skin or guinea pig esophagus for pemphigus foliaceus. Now, we always liked pemphigus foliaceus with guinea pig esophagus because we think about the little guinea pig eating a little bit of foliage so it was like easy to remember Before i guess you rip out its esophagus right like, how did exactly. these things even come about how did they yeah. discover that it was guinea pig esophagus that was it the gets right weirder tissue? come on now perineoplastic pemphigus what's the substrate for that uh i admit i don't remember rats, it's a rat, rat bladder stuff. it's rat rats, bladder yes the bladder of a rat it sounds like an ingredient for a spell and i'll add newt's eyes and a rat's bladder so anyway rat bladder is the indirect immunofluorescence substrate for perineoplastic pemphigus. I thought it was an opportune time for that review. So of the 22 cases, 11 were women and 11 were men. 16 were diagnosed with bolus pemphigoid, so it was far and away the most common autoimmune blistering disorder that they saw in this study. And that makes sense, I think, um, demographically, it's also the most common autoimmune blistering disease most of us see and treat. So that's not a huge surprise. So 16 cases of bolus pemphigoid, and then the runner-up was linear IgA bolus dermatosis, and they only had three cases of that. Uh, They had two cases of pemphigus vulgaris and one case of pemphigus foliaceus. So their mean age of onset of autoimmune blistering disorder was 59.4 years, and their range ranged from 31 to 82. Mean onset of bolus pemphigoid um, as, as a, like drug-induced phenomenon in the study was 63.7 years, and the average time to onset of the autoimmune blistering disease following initiation of the biologic agent was between 33.7, was, was sorry, the average was 33.7 weeks with a range of three days to 152 weeks. So pretty broad range there. 
averaged out at 33.7 weeks. Psoriasis was the most common associated condition for which the biologic agent was prescribed, so it behooves us to be aware of this, followed, of course, by rheumatoid arthritis and then ulcerative colitis. So we mentioned that the anti-TNF agents were sort of the winners of this contest um, coming out on top with Humira having five cases, Enbrel having five cases, Remicade having four cases. After that was Stellara with four cases, so our nice IL-1223 inhibitor. After that, an oldie, not such a goodie, pour one out for Ephelizumab with its two cases, and then Secukinumab with two cases. So that was the total of the different drugs that had been prescribed that seemed to trigger the autoimmune blistering disorders. It's probably important to point out that this doesn't necessarily mean that the TNF-alpha inhibitors are more likely than some of these other drugs to do it. They're also used more and have been used longer. Right. So when they did the study, those drugs had been used for like 10 to 20 years, whereas Mm -hmm. some of the newer drugs had only been used for a few years. Although they do hypothesize hypothesize some mechanistic um, possibilities that might make sense as to why certain medications were a little more frequent. But I do think that's also important to think about the landscape they were looking back over. So that totally makes sense. 17 of the cases had remission or complete resolution of the condition upon stopping treatment with the biologic agent. In five cases, they actually rechallenged the patients, and four out of the five had a relapse of their autoimmune blistering disorder upon rechallenge. So rechallenge is probably not a great idea if you have a patient with the same class. And so, so rechallenge is probably not a great idea if you have a patient that has developed an autoimmune blistering disorder because they're likely to recur, and later they talk about the fact that the recurrences were faster and more severe. Four cases started treatment with a different biologic agent after development and subsequent resolution of the autoimmune blistering disorders. And of that four, only one case of the autoimmune blistering disorder recurred with the new biologic agent. So changing to a different biologic agent in general might be a reasonable choice. The um, other interesting things they talked about. So they say, paradoxically, some anti-TNF agents had been efficacious in the treatment of autoimmune blistering disorder. That's only been reported in a small number of cases, and that has never been proven in a larger study. So elevated TNF-alpha levels are seen in the serum and blister fluid of bolus pemphigoid patients. So you might go, well, gee, then, why does inhibiting TNF-alpha somehow make these people develop autoimmune blistering diseases? So what's interesting is the anti-TNF-alpha agents may potentially be able to induce humoral autoimmunity, Um, autoantibody production, such as double-stranded DNA antibodies, is increased in patients that receive TNF-alpha antibodies, and they range from 9 to 57 of patients on treatment with those drugs. So that's pimple point number one here. The other important thing is that TNF-alpha is necessary for cytotoxic T lymphocytes to develop and then suppress autoreactive B cells. So those cytotoxic T cells actually play an important policing role with our potentially autoreactive B cells. TNF-alpha can induce expression of interferon gamma, and that's going to enhance the function of cytotoxic T lymphocytes, um, upregulating their expressions of FAS and FAS ligand. So when you neutralize or deplete TNF-alpha, there's actually an increase in autoreactive B cells and humoral autoimmunity. So that's one of the reasons that they hypothesize that the TNF-alpha inhibitor sort of led this pack in terms of autoimmune blistering disorder developing. What's also interesting is that IL-17 and 23 are overexpressed in bolus pemphigoid. And so that also may show a relationship with the autoimmune blistering diseases, but it also might be related to the strong relationship between autoimmune blistering disease and psoriasis. So they then look at this study 
um, that was a case control study from 2000 to 2015. And they looked at the prevalence rate of psoriasis in patients with bullous pemphigoid. So they actually were able to see that the prevalence, prevalence of psoriasis in patients who also had bullous pemphigoid was 5.2% versus only 1.2% in controls. So 4.4 was its odds ratio with a confidence interval of 2.2 to 8.9. So not capturing one, so significant. So psoriasis patients may have a higher baseline risk of developing autoimmune blistering disorder. So I think that's another important thing for us to be aware of. There may be kind of an underlying immune cluster that links bullous pemphigoid, linear IgA bullous um, dermatosis, psoriasis, multiple sclerosis, and irritable bowel disease. And so we might start to understand a little bit better why some of these medications can um, trigger conditions in patients that we're treating for one condition when they get a second disorder treated, like the TNF-alpha inhibitors and the reports of drug-induced lupus, for example. Um, I think that it's also realistic now to, to discuss the fact that it's beyond epitope, spread, epitope spreading. Um, the reason why patients will develop these conditions is not just that the skin's inflamed and there's epitope spreading. There's also pathological pathways that kind of connect these and probably genetic mechanisms that maybe underlie some of the reasons why these conditions often run in packs. But I thought it was a very nicely done article. It gave a good opportunity to review the relevant biologics, and I enjoyed reading it. No pediatric cases for what it's worth. The youngest patient was 31 in this review. Well, um, I just want to briefly revisit an article that we discussed way back in episode 22. You kind of alluded to this earlier, Michelle, and we brought it up at the Utah Derm Society meeting. So in episode 22, we discussed an article from JAMA Dermatology called Comparison of Biologics and Oral Treatments for Plaque Psoriasis by April Armstrong, Matthias Augustin, at all. It was a great article. It compared a bunch of phase three studies for psoriasis. In fact, it won the Dermy Award for best overall in 2020. And they found that the best in terms of efficacy were brodalumab and ixacizumab, which were both IL-17, as you mentioned, and as well as guselcumab and risenkizumab, which are both IL-23 inhibitors. Those all four were equivalent and the best in terms of efficacy. So when we discussed this on the podcast back in episode 22, we then also said, well, there's more than efficacy. So how do we choose among those? Maybe we should do it by cost and by dosing interval. And at that point, we gave the award to guselcumab, which is Trumpire, <laughs> because it was the least expensive of them all at a mere $77,000 per year price tag. And also you only had to take it every three months. That's pretty good. I guess $77,000 may or may not be good, but cheapest is good. However, when I was preparing the talk for the Utah Derm Society, it, I discovered that a lot of the prices had changed. It's hard to get definitive pricing information on a lot of medications, of course, but I was just going by like GoodRx and stuff, which is what I went by originally. And all of the prices were different, in some cases by a lot. So brodalumab, for example, went from $182,000 per year to $39,000 per year. Which Quite is a bargain. Decreased by 89%. <laughs> okay. And then ixacizumab went up by 13% to $119,000. Guselcumab, our winner, remember, went up by 17% to $90,000 per year. And then risenkizumab went down by 35% to about $68,000 a year. So with all of that, I have to withdraw the award from guselcumab and reapply it to either risenkizumab 
or brodalumab. Brodalumab is definitely cheaper, but you have to deal with this REMS thing. REMS is this like risk reporting or monitoring service. I forget what REMS actually stands for, but basically in the trials for risk evaluation and monitoring service, but I'm not sure I'll look it up. Keep going. It's like I pledge and whatever you have to do for thalidomide. Those are both like REMS programs. And in the phase three trials for brodalumab, I guess a few more patients in the treatment group completed suicide versus the treatments in Mm. patients in the control group. Uh, there was some controversy at the time, and it's ongoing in a way about whether or not brodalumab actually increases suicidality, or that's some kind of funny artifact of how the study was designed, or just how the baseline demographics and groups played out. But it's fairly easy to actually sign up for this REM system. You can do it on the brodalumab website, and you just sort of have to fill out a form and then make sure you talk to the patient and document that you talk to them about the potential increased risk and so on. Um. Which is more work than just clicking on Risen Kizumab in your EMR and off to the races. So there you go. It's either Brodalumab or Risen Kizumab, depending on how much you want to deal with the REMS stuff. $39,000 a year for Brodalumab and a shot every two weeks versus Risen Kizumab, $68,000 per year and a shot every three months. So REMS, I was close. Risk evaluation and mitigation strategy is what it calls. Mitigate that risk. (laughs) All right. Well, that's probably all the time we've got for today, Um, especially since we spent so long back in time in Moab. So thanks for hanging out with us today, guys. And thanks to our institutions. Of course, thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. Thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. And thanks to the Utah Durham Society for inviting us to come speak. And thanks to whoever invited you to speak at the AAD. Was it the (laughs) AAD or was it somebody else? Uh, it was individual people from the AAD. All right. Um, and let's remember what we learned today. Well, we learned some updates and highlights from the AAD and from the Utah Durham Society meeting. And we learned about biologics, a nice review of all of the biologics and how they work, as well as the fact that they can cause some autoimmune blistering diseases. And the, quote, best biologic for psoriasis may be different now than we thought a couple of years ago. If you would like to hear more of us, I can't blame you. And you can do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find all of our archives on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, where you can also find links to all of the original articles that we discuss. You can also find us on our other podcast. So we have a public-facing shorter podcast. It's about 15 to 20-minute little bites of information about different conditions that might be relevant to patients. So they span topics from hair loss to skin care to sun protection to how to not give your kid allergic contact dermatitis on Halloween. Um, It's called SkinCast, and um, we have a lovely time with that, and it's also available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on our social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And thanks, of course, to Ryan Carlisle and Morgan Dykeman, medical students and members of Team Dermosphere who keep those accounts moving along. And thanks again to you listeners for hanging out with us today. We will see you in two weeks. <laughs>